Welcome to State of the State, the monthly roundup of policy and research for the state of Michigan, brought to you by the Institute for Public Policy and Social Research at Michigan State University and the good folks at WKAR Studios. I'm Arnold Weinfeld, Associate Director for the Institute, and I'm joined by MSU economist, Dr. Charlie Ballard, and Institute Director, Dr. Mac Roseman. Gentlemen, always a pleasure to be with you. Later on, we'll be joined by Dr. Jakana Thomas, an Associate Professor in MSU's Department of Political Science, whose research focuses on political violence, how violence influences conflict resolution, and the determinants of a successful peace process, items that are no doubt on the minds of many Americans today. But first, Charlie, uh, there's a few other issues uh, floating around out there, the economy, the pandemic. Uh, we had some uh, good news this past week. Uh, Michigan held its consensus revenue estimating conference, which of course includes uh, House and Senate fiscal agencies, as well as the Department of Treasury. And lo and behold, even though we are uh, still, the prediction is still 2% below revenues uh, from where we should be, um, it's not nearly as bad as we thought back in May. Can you talk a bit about what's happened since, you know, we first held that uh, consensus revenue estimating conference in the spring uh, where we, where the, you know, it was all doom and gloom, $2 billion deficits and the like. And, and what kind of a recovery are we experiencing? You know, people back then talked about a V or a swoosh. Really seems to be more of a roller coaster than anything else. Yeah, the... Uh... Uh, drop in the economy in Michigan and, and everywhere else uh, was more dramatic in April of 2020 than, than really, I, by many measures, April of 2020 was the worst month in American economic history. Um, we previously thought that the 100,000 jobs lost in Michigan in January of 2009 was really horrendous. In April of 2020, we lost 10 times as many. We lost about a million jobs. And then there, and so when the revenue estimators, and by the way, let's not make, let's not, I'm not going to be criticizing them when the, some of their estimates were off. These are people who are doing their very best under difficult circumstances. When they met in May, things looked really dire. And then we have had a halfway decent recovery from that fall in Michigan and in most of the United States. We've made, recovered about half of the jobs that were lost and, and a, a substantial amount of the economic activity that was lost. I think there's a couple things going on. Uh, one is the, the federal government has, has stepped up and has relieved the burdens in many ways. Another is that we have learned uh, lots of businesses have been able to continue to operate better than maybe we first thought uh, in, in an online, in a remote environment. Um, nevertheless, and so, so that the good news is that the budgetary situation for Michigan is not nearly as bad as we once thought. The not so good news is that the recovery appears to have stalled out. Uh, we don't have the December jobs numbers for Michigan yet, but um, the November jobs numbers, the, the, the recovery in employment reversed. We lost jobs in November. And in, for the nation as a whole, uh, uh, job growth was very flat in October and November, and then we lost jobs in December. So, um, typical of the winter months, though, too, isn't it, Charlie? Uh, it, but these are seasonally adjusted uh, numbers. Uh, uh, yes, it is typically true that uh, uh, we, we lose jobs in in the winter month. I, I mentioned earlier that uh, we lost a hundred thousand in January of two thousand nine. 
it, that was after seasonal adjustment. If you just look at the raw data, we lost a quarter of a million jobs in that month. So you're, you're right, but these numbers are adjusted to take into account the, the normal variations that happen over the, over the year. And uh, you mentioned uh, the impact of uh, federal stimulus packages. Um, there have been two or three, I'm starting to lose count here, and certainly President Biden has put another one on the table. Uh, this one uh, of a higher amount and uh, with uh, aid to uh, state and local governments as well. How long can we keep doing this? Can we keep injecting federal money into the economy? Well, that, that's, a, that's a good question. And I do, I, I, I like to say a, a kind of an on the one hand and on the other hand. On the one hand, uh, I think this is not yet the time to worry about balancing our budget uh, because our economy is still in deep trouble. On the other hand, um, you know, the, the deficit, federal deficit for the fiscal year that ended last September was more than $3 trillion. Uh, and now the total accumulated debt is, is pushing toward $22 trillion with a T. Uh, so far, the world credit markets seem happy to gobble up that debt with, um, and we don't have to pay very high interest rates. I do worry that there will eventually be a day of reckoning. And so I, I hope that once we get past the worst of the COVID crisis, which I think we may well be able to do that by, by the summer, uh, to have made a lot of progress, um, then it will be time to have a serious national discussion for the first time in a long time about maybe paying our bills. Um, the, uh, I think that the uh, tax cuts that were passed uh, three years ago were absolutely wrongheaded because introductory macroeconomics tells you that you should balance your budget or run surpluses when the economy is good, leaving some room for deficits when the economy is, is struggling. But um, the tax cuts that went into effect three years ago um, uh, th they meant that we were running trillion a year, even when the economy was doing well. So I, th that is, that's a concern, but I feel like I'm a kind of a lonely voice in the wilderness when I say that, because in order to deal with it, you're going to have to cut some spending or you're going to have to raise some taxes. And there are a lot of people who are uh, in, in Congress uh, who have uh, pledged not to do one of those things. Well, Matt, let's, let's talk about your thoughts on this. And I'd like you to, to also reflect on since the events of January 6th, uh, corporate America has seemingly taken a different tact with uh, its philosophy on donation. Even the Detroit Regional Chamber yesterday came out with an announcement that they were going to be reviewing uh, those uh, elected officials um, and candidates for office moving forward. Uh, based on the language that they use. As Charlie noted, many of our congressional uh, representatives and our own state legislators have taken no tax pledges, still come from a very conservative fiscal viewpoint. Um, how is that going to match up at, at, at moving forward? 
Well, first, it's too early to say on the donation patterns. This is right after an election is not usually a high time uh, for corporate PAC donations. Many of the uh, businesses that have uh, made announcements have just said they're not making donations for the next six months or doing some kind of pause. Um, and overall, actually, the data shows that corporate donations tend to moderate representatives. It's actually the individual contributions um, that are more likely to lead uh, to more extreme uh, representatives. Um, so it's not uh, clear uh, that, uh, that, that those patterns are really going to, to change um, our polarized uh, landscape. Um, so when I you say individual donations, you know, you're talking about folks like uh, the Koch brothers or DeVos or Soros in particular. Well, no, it's actually uh, mostly small donors. Uh, the small donors are the ones that are most associated with the most extreme representatives. Um, and so... Uh, it, it might look like, um, you know, the, the corporate class is, um, you know, is, is helping to move the Republican Party rightward. But if you think about it, those are mostly access oriented donors uh, rather than ideological uh, donors. And so they, they tend not to be the ones that are associated with the most extreme uh, representatives. Um, I just real quickly on the stimulus, just want to make sure everybody understands that although um, state and local government funding wasn't directly included in the December stimulus, Michigan is still vastly helped um, in its state government by that uh, stimulus uh, package. Not only is money uh, that is for health and education likely to be uh, fungible in the state budget, as it was almost entirely um, in the last state budget, but we also benefit in terms of revenues from those uh, um, you know, higher unemployment benefits from uh, checks going to individuals. And so um, that those stimulus packages before uh, really helped to uh, alleviate uh, the what would have been big pain in the state budget. Um, and going forward, um, if we do get to that point that Charlie mentioned, where, where we start to see, if not austerity, at least a, a turning off of the, the hose of federal money, um, you know, we, we are likely to, to have postponed that um, potential pain in the state budget rather than um, gotten rid of it uh, completely. And Matt, what, what's your view moving forward of how Democrats and Republicans may or may not work more closely? Uh, here in Michigan, the balance of power did not shift um, at all. But in Congress, it did actually, um, as evidenced by not just the election of uh, Joe Biden, the Democrat, but in a year when everyone thought Democrats would pick up seats in the House and the Senate, the House got tighter. Democrats have less majority there. And lo and behold, uh, they now technically hold the majority in the Senate. How do you think this is all going to work out, uh, even in light of the events of January 6th? Has there been any kind of a shock to the system to cause people to want to work together more? Well, it doesn't seem like it so far. Um, you know, we're a couple of days after uh, the inauguration and already there's a dispute about even how to uh, form the uh, Senate committees. Um, so and there's there's no evidence that uh, there's Republican support for, uh, for example, any of the initial um, legislative proposals that Biden put forward, um, either the immigration one or uh, the uh, stimulus uh, proposal. And so um, there's a lot of talk about unity, but most of that was about um, 
you know, being unified in values or against extremism or maybe toning down the culture war, um, there's not really a whole lot of sign that there's going to be uh, bipartisanship when it comes to uh, public policy. Um, Democrats, you know, do now have full control and there are a lot of people who are going to want to use that full control to enact a lot of policies. Um, we also know that the party out of the presidency tends to win the midterm election. And so uh, they are going to see this as a, sort of a, a fleeting chance uh, that they have um, to potentially uh, enact um, new policies. Now, at the state level, um, research shows that the party out of power in Washington is more likely to move uh, their uh, states more ideologically in the opposite direction. So we will be looking for Republican states to actually move rightward under the Biden uh, administration uh, while Congress uh, tries to take advantage of its uh, couple of years uh, with Democrats in the majority. So gentlemen, it seems that despite everyone's enthusiasm, for turning the calendar to 2021, and obviously many enthusiastic about the election of Joe Biden and Democrats in control, 2021 might look very similar to 2020 in terms of the politics and the economy, the impact of the pandemic. Would you say? I think uh, 2021 is going to be better than 2020, but that's setting the bar really low. And I, I do think that there's a very good chance that we will have, um, you know, it, it, certainly the, the Trump administration never really took fighting COVID very seriously. They viewed it as a public relations problem, not a public health problem. Uh, Biden, I, it, it will be difficult for them not to do better. Uh, I think there's a decent chance that we will speed up the, the shots in arms uh, rapidly. And uh, but since, uh, you know, there's still bottlenecks in the system, I think it's probably summer or fall before we really start seeing major progress. And then it will take many months to kind of put the economy together. So most economists say uh, that um, 2021 will still be a, a rocky year and maybe we can look to 2022 to getting back to a, an economic more normal. So again, that role of coaching. When, when it came to, to policymaking, actually, 2020 was a, a fairly bipartisan year. We had three uh, major stimulus packages uh, supported by uh, both parties at the federal government. At the state level, we had um, a surprisingly unpolarized uh, budget discussion uh, as well. Um, so there was uh, a lot of noise and a lot of, of course, bad news in uh, health and economy. Um, but in terms of policymaking process, some of that bad news actually focused uh, energy uh, toward actually getting uh, a few things done. You're absolutely yeah, right. But most of those, as you noted, Matt, were on the budget side. Um, not sure that uh, we saw any other deep policy changes uh, across the board, say in healthcare or uh, other other issue areas, did we? Well, we're, we're about to learn um, because of the, the budget reconciliation process, which is the main way that um, uh, party, party majorities in the Senate can pass uh, legislation, that a whole lot can be put into the budget category. Uh, and um, already uh, we saw a pretty major energy bill. The parties actually negotiated an energy bill 
uh, and just stuck it in the stimulus package in, in December. Um, there are uh, already efforts to include expansion of Obamacare benefits uh, into the stimulus bill. There's efforts to include a big transportation funding uh, and alternative energy funding into uh, the, the next stimulus bill. So, um, you know, I wouldn't, wouldn't poo-poo the just budget because we're about to find out that almost everything um, has enough budgetary impact to be included in those bills. Well, that's, that's probably true on the federal level. I'm not so sure that, you know, on the state level, we're able to do that. But that is an interesting point you make, Matt, and one that I think our, our audience, if they're not aware of, needs to be aware of, that how policymaking efforts have shifted at the federal level through the through and to the budget process. Yes? Uh, they have, uh, partially because of those rules, but also partially just because, uh, you know, we, we focus a lot on social issues and cultural concerns in, in the campaign. Um, but the actual business of government is mostly economic policy. And um, most of the uh, issues that we talk about have big budgetary implications. And that means that uh, they, they can be discussed in, in a budget context as well. Well, speaking of the campaign and politics, Matt, why don't uh, you go ahead and introduce our next guest, a colleague of yours uh, from the Department of Political Science, uh, Dr. Jakana Thomas. Yes, I'm pleased that uh, Jakana Thomas is uh, with us, my uh, colleague and an associate professor of political science and an international expert on terrorism. Uh, and uh, violence. Uh, Jakana was a part of our department forum, uh, which is uh, visible uh, online, where we had uh, people in comparative politics and international relations discussing the events of the Capitol on uh, January 6th. And she also has a new uh, piece out at the conversation uh, about uh, dealing with uh, this, uh, these recent events. Uh, Jakana, you want to get us started uh, by talking about what uh, your big points were there about how we should see the attack on the Capitol um, in international context. Yes, for sure. Thank you for having me. Um, so last week, my colleagues and I discussed the events at the Capitol from a comparative perspective. And our point was really that America is not really the only country to encounter many of these same problems. And so our, what we set out to do was figure out what we can learn from the rest of the world um, about these events and the potential broader impacts of these events on our political system. Um, so just broadly, the broad takeaway or the four main takeaways from that conversation were that this looked very much like post-election violence that we would witness around the world in other countries. Um, and post-election violence occurs often when people distrust the electoral process or they're unhappy with the outcome. And so they engage in violence. But what's a key point, uh, a key point of focus here that I'll come back to in a minute is a lack of trust in the institutions and specifically in the electoral process. Um, my other colleague, Erica Fons mentioned that what we saw on display on January 6th, again, is consistent with um, democratic backsliding. And this is kind of where you see a democratic state sliding closer and closer toward autocracy very slowly. Uh, other colleagues said that this is there are clear indicators of maybe some deep-seated trouble ahead for the United States. Um, and some of the key factors that are going to cause some of this prob these problems are the gross um, economic inequality and the growing polarization in our politics that we've been talking about a little bit today. And these can cause or lead to democratic erosion and breakdown. So one thing that my colleagues did suggest is that there, 
the events of January 6th were not necessarily a death knell to our democracy. It's not that this is a sign that our country is dying. However, it is a sign that there are some broader problems. Um, and one of the problems that I really brought up and that I focus on a lot in my research is the growing extremism and the growing radicalization that has led to violence in our country that was all, and the kind of violence that was on display on January 6th. Um, and so some of those factors like polarization and inequality, they breed grievances that can fuel political violence. They can allow political entrepreneurs um, to, to seize this moment and say, look, we have a crisis that we have to solve that our government cannot solve. Um, so one of the biggest things that I think Michigan really needs to focus on and look at is this growing radicalization among the population that's kind of fueled and supported by militia activity around the Midwest and around the country more broadly. Um, so groups like the Three Percenters, the Oath Keepers, the Proud Boys, these are concerning organizations. And we know this because um, at least one Three Percenter was involved in the plot to kidnap uh, our governor. And recently, um, the Oath Keepers have been implicated as, or have been suspected as helping to orchestrate these particular events that we saw in the Capitol. Um, and so one thing that I think is important to note is that these right-wing militias that we're seeing cropping up and that have been around, um, the Oath Keepers and the Three Percenters have been around since 2008 and 2009, they're not just harmless patriot groups that are protecting the constitution, um, but they're actually challenging our authority and they're threatening the democracy. Um, and so the forum really, we propose some things that we can do. And I think a couple of the really important ones are that politicians have to somehow restore faith in our institutions, right? They have to combat this erosion of trust in our electoral process and the institutions more broadly. Um, and I think one, one freshman congressman, Peter Meyer, recently uh, came out to denounce the violence and he's been trying to restore the faith in the process. And I thought he said a couple of really interesting things. Um, he mentioned that it was really important to help us move past this point that uh, you know, we have accountability for what happened, but also that politicians start to tell their constituents the truth. So not just to tell them what they want to hear, not necessarily just tell them what's politically expedient, but tell them the truth. And to some degree, the truth that's important that would help combat some of this growing radicalization and this growing extremism is that our constitution is not being undermined by government actors. Our elections are safe and secure for the most part. Our institutions are not beyond repair. And that means that people can continue to participate in participatory democracy in order to see real changes. And most importantly for me is we do not need non-state actors like these militia groups to protect the government from its citizens or to protect the government from itself, right? And I think a particularly troubling sign is after um, Meyer came out uh, suggesting accountability he's had to buy body armor and change his security routine because of this threat of violence. And so I think one thing that we really have to do is acknowledge that this is a problem that our country has. It was not an isolated event, right? January 6th is not the last time we're going to see violence. In fact, we saw violence just yesterday from the other side um, at the DNC headquarters in Portland. And so, you know, it's really important that we acknowledge that that was not just a fleeting moment. January 6th was not an aberration. This is potentially a sign of what might be coming if we don't take seriously the fact that we have armed non-state actors roaming um, the country and for the most part going unchallenged. 
And can you talk about the, the lessons um, f- from international examples for sort of what we saw of the mix of motives and actors uh, at the Capitol? Because you've mentioned, obviously, uh, some of the, the most extreme armed elements, but we also had just a whole bunch of people just show up uh, who were just Trump supporters um, who thought that they were going to the Capitol uh, on, on his behalf. Some of them um, you know, will still be uh, obviously held accountable for entering the Capitol, but some of them were just uh, protesting. On, on the outside. Um, and obviously afterwards, we had a lot of uh, security at the Capitol and at state capitals and did not see a, a whole lot of uh, large uh, crowds um, uh, to go along with, with the few militia people. So um, what are the kind of examples and lessons from, from trying to acknowledge uh, those uh, nonviolent protesters and to sort of separate them from the radicalization that we saw at the Capitol? Right, so there are a couple of really important points that I'd like to pull out. So there were multiple instances of political violence um, or politics on display or contentious politics, right? So we did see violent riots, which are important to condemn and to come uh, or I guess to approach with the full force of the law. But at the same time, we also saw organized peaceful protests. And those two things coexisted at the same time. We saw terrorism, those three things, you know, uh, coexisted at the same time. And it's really important to treat those actors separately, um, acknowledge the things that motivated all of them and that, that some of those motivations might be somewhat common, but for, to actually acknowledge that those were different sets of actors and the repercussions are different, right? We cannot come out forcefully and just denounce all the protesters, quash all right-wing speech and protest because it happened to coincide with violence because that just kind of feeds into this radicalization loop and this radicalization process. And so what we know from around the world is that government repression, and it doesn't necessarily just have to be violent repression, but it could be repression of people's civil liberties, is one key reason people become radicalized and uh, take up extremist politics and take up violence. Um, So in order to avoid turning some of those peaceful protesters into violent extremists in the future, we have to make sure that we don't just crack down on their ideas and their beliefs and their speech just because we don't like it, but recognize that just because they were there and just because they may have contrary beliefs, they're not necessarily complicit and guilty. However, those who are complicit and guilty um, of engaging in actual violence, engaging in insurrection, the government has a responsibility to crack down on those actors in order to deter further violence in the future. But again, Lessons from around the country suggest that we can't treat those sets of actors the same, right? We can't treat the peaceful protesters as if they were rioters. And this is a job for law enforcement. They're going to have to do a really good job of discriminating between those who are actually violent and actually, you know, planning and orchestrating these violent events or those who participated in the violent riots and those who were just out to protest peacefully because they're not the same. Um, And as you mentioned, there are underlying grievances that have kind of sparked people's anger that need to be acknowledged, right? And some of these things are about, are legitimate, like, you know, economic inequality or the fact that people are hurting economically. Some of this is brought on by COVID, but some of this has been around for a really long time. Um, And this can be dealt with by actually governing, right? By responding to people's I guess, uh, the the grievances that they have. The violence though, I mean, that may, I think these grievances allow violent actors to then appeal to people who otherwise would not be violent, right? These these grievances make people, uh, make these political entrepreneurs say, 
A, these problems that you're facing are beyond what the government can control and, and change. They're not interested in doing this. We, however, have the unique solution. And the solution is to take over the government, right? And so if the government continues to ignore that the people who came out to protest might have some legitimate grievances toward the government, um, they allow these actors, these violent actors, to kind of recruit, right? Another concern is that... Uh, like, I, I, I guess an, another concern here is that these violent actors are also um, feeding them lies that some of the politicians are also feeding them. And they're, they're making this, they're painting a picture of a country that is not actually our country, right? They're painting this picture of a country where people can't go out and vote for their politicians anymore because elections are meaningless. They're painting a picture that there is no point in participating in the institution. There's no point in running for office anymore because you can't actually change things from those institutions. And it's also important for government actors and specifically the ones that that contingent trust to come out and say, like uh, Peter Meyer did, that, that this is just not what's happening, right? Like, this is just not the truth. The institutions are still what they've always been. They're still safe. They're still secure. You can still participate. You can still change um, the balance in Congress. You can still change the local political landscape by participating in politics. This is not your only option. Um, and it's very important that people see that there are other options out here other than violence. So you mentioned some legitimate grievances. There were, of course, also um, signs of uh, white supremacist groups and uh, long-running uh, racial and, and racist and, and Nazi imagery um, associated with some of, of the protesters, um, but it, it wasn't quite Charlottesville and it's kind of over, overwhelming um, uh, display. Um, but I, I know that there must be international examples of um, racial group conflict, ethnic group conflict, which often um, coincides with, with political conflict. So uh, what can we sort of learn from, from those um, uh, in, in thinking about the, the role of racial politics in, in this? Yeah, so that's a, that's a great question. And I think there's been some really interesting research on uh, ethnic violence and ethnic politics that would say that these cleavages become salient when political actors make them salient, right? These are cleavages that always exist, that can coexist, but when you have a political actor that comes and, you know, fabricates this conflict, people who are on these different lines are likely to buy into it, right? Unfortunately, political actors and, and trusted elites have a big role in stoking this violence and also quelling this violence as well. And so around the world, we see often that there is ethnic conflict, but what we also see is there are a lot of people in countries where there's huge ethnic mixes, um, maybe where there were histories of contention that can figure out how to live co and coexist peacefully. And so just because we have this polarization doesn't mean that it necessarily has to lead to conflict, but it only does when we allow politicians to kind of um, stoke these tensions along these dividing lines, right? That when they make these issues salient. And so if we could find a way to make these issues less salient, they'll never go away. Uh, you know, they're not going to go away in our country, but they may not play such a primary role in our politics. Um, and so I guess one of the things that we, we can do which it sounds very naive, but is return to just civility, right? Return to politics of respecting other people that have different beliefs, um, that are 
different than you and, ex and, and believe that they have a right to exist, right? They have a right to be in this country as well and to have contrary opinions. And we can disagree without going to war, right? That it is possible for us to do that in this country. And I think we're hearing this rhetoric that that is not possible, right? It is not possible to coexist with these different viewpoints, but that's just not accurate, right? Or, issues are like the, the rest of the world has kind of been contending with these kind of issues and have had to figure out a way to do that. See Arnold, we're doing our part by returning to boring budgetary politics and uh, <laughs> civility. Uh, and we, I just wanna mention that uh, Jakana Thomas uh, both has uh, the uh, video from the forum that's online that we'll link to, also has a new piece in the conversation if you wanna read uh, more. Uh, and uh, our Michigan Political Leadership Program uh, co-chairs actually have a new piece in the City Pulse on uh, civility in our politics um, that also hits on some of these uh, themes and then maybe some solutions uh, that, that we can look to going forward. Thanks, Matt. And uh, many thanks to you, Jakana. I greatly appreciate this conversation. I think it's one that uh, we'll be needing to have uh, over and over again. And uh, I look forward to Ipster uh, being a uh, catalyst and uh, connector to having these kinds of conversations uh, with folks such as yourself that dive in deep into these issues. Uh, Charlie, anything else uh, that you'd like to add before we close? Well, I think this has been a really, uh, really good discussion. Um, it, it will be very interesting to watch in the years, not just in the weeks and months, but in the years to come to, to see um, whether the, uh, the polarization in our country accelerates or, or whether we can um, pull it back. I think that's, uh, that's an unanswered question. I'm glad that we have people like uh, Jakana Thomas uh, looking closely at, at these issues. And I guess I, I would say that our, I think uh, our democracy is, I'm, I'm cautiously optimistic that our democracy is sufficiently robust that uh, we'll, we'll get past this too. Well, I, I do try and remind people when I've been in these conversations, that on January 6th in other countries, martial law would have been declared, institutions shut down. And the fact of the matter is, is that after a few hours of mayhem and insurrection, uh, our body of government got back to work. Two weeks later this week, we had an inauguration. So to me, there are differences already to be optimistic about Charlie and Jakana. And Matt, thank you all for being here with us. And uh, our thanks again. Uh, to Russ White and the staff here at WKR for their support of this program. Join us again next month on State of the State.